Good morning, everyone. Um, sorry, we're starting a little late. I was just telling Jeremy, limping in this morning. Um, um, didn't sleep well last night. I had some pain in my foot, but glad to be here this morning. And um, as we were just talking about, given the, the nature of this the topic, so we're talking about, for those of you that are new, um, which I don't know you guys. I'm sorry. What are your names? Chad. Chad? And Christy. Christy. It's nice to meet you guys. And Justine? Okay, awesome. I heard your name right. What was your name? Bye. Bye. My sister. Your sister. Awesome. I'm so glad you guys are here today. Um, welcome. Um, we are, we're talking through the, um, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the one that was um, ratified, approved uh, 1689. That's the confession that our church holds to. This is a very old historic document that um, we use as sort of a guide for our own just sort of doctrine in the church. So we are proudly confessional. We stand with 2,000 years of church history. Um, and so we have been going through this chapter by chapter, week by week. I think the current section goes through like March, and then we'll take a break and then come back. Uh, or March or April and then come back after summer, I believe. But um, we're just taking it one chapter uh a week there's like 32 chapters i think um but i was just um just wanted to give a disclaimer given the the nature of the of the discussion the fact that it's a historical document the fact that we're talking about uh frankly it's just kind of like heady theological things as opposed to your more casual sort of lesson uh fellow elder damien please keep me accountable yep as we said last or three weeks ago, words matter. Yep. So um, sometimes when you're talking about these kinds of things, it's really easy to uh, say something, then everybody knows what you mean, but it may not be technically right. So I just want to make sure that we're precise. And then also that, uh, Jeremy and I were just saying, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here. Wheel here. Um, this is a this is a book that we've all been referencing. It is a, uh, Robin Tour, the general editor, they've gone through uh, not only each chapter, but each paragraph, um, and so a lot of what I'll be talking about today is um, a direct references from this book. I've tried to make it, obviously, my own thoughts and not just typing this book out. But um, it was very helpful in terms of um, laying this out. So with that, um, I'll open us in prayer and uh, we'll get started today. God, we just thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that... Um, in your sovereignty, in the plan and purpose you have for all of us, God, that you sent your son Christ uh, to die on the cross for our sin. We thank you for the burial, the resurrection, and ascension of Christ. We thank you that we have an advocate, God, that we have a salvation, um, that we have a newness of life, God, that we have hearts of flesh as opposed to hearts of stone. God, thank you for all the things that you have done in and through Christ for us. We give you all the praise and glory. We ask that we would not respond to that beautiful reality with passivity, but that we would love and adore you in your word, that we would seek to obey it the best we can through the power of your spirit, and that you would bless us each and every day as we go about our day-to-day -day lives. God, help the things that we do and say honor you and glorify you. Um, just be with me this morning. Help my words to be clear and not confusing. And uh, be with whoever is preaching this morning. Prepare our hearts for what it is that you would teach us. Um, we just thank you again for how much you love us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So, <clears throat> chapter 3 
um, of the London Baptist Confession of Faith um, is all about God's decree. So what has God decreed? And then what does he mean by the things that he's decreed? Um, because this is God decreeing things, this kind of weaves in and out of some other theological concepts. Uh, we'll talk about uh, congru or not congruency, sorry, uh, what's the word? Contingency, which is kind of another word for free agency. We'll talk about uh, predestination. We'll talk about election. Um, so it kind of weaves in and out of that. So I wanted to start by um, reading the first paragraph, and then um, actually we'll give a little intro. We'll read the first paragraph. There's a bunch of context I want to give after the first paragraph, um, and then we'll keep going. There's just a lot to cover there. The other four or five paragraphs that follow um, are much shorter, and therefore what we'll talk about surrounding those paragraphs is a little lighter. Uh, also, I'll just say too, given the given the nature of this, because it is so theological and almost scholarly, um, I will probably just end up rambling. So if you guys have questions uh, or comments, like please just say my name or raise your hand. Otherwise, I'll just literally just keep trying through it. So um, awesome. So if you think about it, we we live in a world that at times appears to have like major contradictions, right? Um, we see chaos and we see order, right? We see freedom, we see restraint, we see joy, we see despair, uh, vanity and purpose. So there's all these different sort of realities in life where um, sometimes just given the day or week or month, sometimes we are hopeful, sometimes we have despair, right? Sometimes things are really chaotic, sometimes we're very ordered. But all that to say, raise your hand or, or not in agreement or whatever. Has there ever been a point in your life where, like me, you've kind of looked around and you're like, is there a reason or a purpose or a plan for any of this? Uh, please tell me I'm not the only one. <laughs> yeah, there's even, even as somebody that was, uh, you know, raised in the church i didn't i didn't believe until college but as somebody who's just been in the church generally their whole life even after believing just you just sometimes you look around just given the nature of life and sin the world we live in we're like god is what's going on <laughs> is there a plan for any of this so with all of these opportunities and disappointments that life presents it's not, it's not hard to look at that and sort of come to one of two conclusions. Either that all of this is just darkness with only an illusion of significance, uh, or, and I'm going to quote the book, it's a kaleidoscope of a masterful display of an immense and infinite mind. So either it's all darkness and it's all just... We're just here and we live and then we die. We pay taxes somewhere along the way and it means nothing. Uh, we're just, you know, ants on a space rock kind of thing. Um, or it's a grand and masterful plan yeah. where regardless of what happens, it is planned, it is purposed, that sort of thing. So we can either accept nihilism 
and say all is meaningless and just live as ants on a space rock. Or we can accept the idea that all of creation is a creative work of a gracious and powerful creator. So the way that the author of this, or the general editor, if you will, of this book, the way he describes it, the way he describes chapter three, we're talking about of God's decree. He says the third chapter states one overarching theological principle. All that was, is, or will be, is well-grounded in the eternal purpose of the triune God. So with that, to that, I'll give a hearty amen. So we're going to go ahead and move into the paragraphs themselves. What I'd like to do is I'm going to read the paragraph, and then I'm going to ask you guys to read some of the, the scriptural references that have been tied to this paragraph, um, and then we'll kind of dissect it a little bit. So if you will. So paragraph one says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so is thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath any fellowship therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things, and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. So basically, if I could put it up in my own very layman terms, right? Um, from all eternity, literally from his own will, self-generated, God hath decreed these things, whatever comes to pass. And yet, we have to be careful because he is not the author of sin, and we'll get into that in a little bit. And he has no fellowship therein. So God has decreed all things. God has set all these things into motion. Whatever so comes to pass has been decreed, but that does not make God the author of sin because he has no fellowship with sin. Um, nor is the violence offered to the will of the creature. So it's also in a very wordy, old-school way, mm -hmm. saying that it doesn't like remove our contingency, which if you think about it is more like free agency. It doesn't take away secondary causes, meaning God decreed these things. That's the first cause of all of it. Right? Everything that exists, everything that will exist, everything that's come to pass or will pass, that's the first cause. But it doesn't remove the second causes, which is us and what we do, the creature. That's, uh, that's a term known as compatibilism. Compatibilism. Thank we you. are we are comfortable with the fact that God is completely sovereign. Yeah. And yet our choices and our decisions have consequences mm -hmm. and real moral outcomes yeah yeah uh, in which he appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness and accomplishing his grace so obviously he's um, displaying for us his power his faithfulness and his own wisdom in accomplishing his own decree so <clears throat> if you have your bibles or your phones or whatever could somebody read uh, could somebody take Isaiah 46 verse 10 <clears throat> Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So from the beginning of beginning of time, all eternity. Say that last part again. 
my counsel will stand. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Mm. Yeah. And somebody read Amen. Romans 9. Let's do uh, 15 through 19. For what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that he has mercy on whom he has wills and pardons whomever he wills. I'm reading from chapter 9. That's correct. I can't remember that. Yeah. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Yeah. Amen to that. Amen. Can somebody read James 1, through, or excuse me, 1, verse 13? Doctor? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Somebody read. So it could be me. Couldn't, <laughs> it could be the good doctor. All right. Uh, can somebody read 1 John 1 5? This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Yeah, so some of these are talking about, you know, from eternity, God's counsel stands. Some of these are referencing that God is not the author of sin or that at the very least he has no fellowship with sin. Um, we'll keep going a little bit just because I feel like it's these are really powerful. Can somebody read Acts 4, 27 through 28? In this city where we are gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both here and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever in your hand and your plan that predestined to take place. One more verse. 27 and 28. And that was it. Oh, yeah. Okay. So what we see from these, and I'll, we'll have one more to sort of wrap up that part, but... As we can see in some of these references, obviously we saw that you know God has no fellowship with sin. Uh, God will not tempt us. Um, so all of these events, like others, other scriptures said, all these events and the details of those events are the outworking in time of God's eternal plan. So as we saw in, in several of those, God has an eternal plan. That plan is being outworked over time, right? So it's probably not... Well, say not kind of. It is not revealed to us in totality, other than redemption, right? The redemption of man, but the means by which that redemption of man happens outside of the um, the means of redemption, specifically like justification, sanctification, the things that happen in life that ultimately are a part of this plan aren't revealed to us. They sort of happen as they are, and we have contingency in that. Um, 
But what this paragraph is also saying, and I think I already said this, is that it's displaying both his divine wisdom and holiness. Right? So that's something that we can take to the bank, so to speak. Right? We serve a God, we love a God, and a God loves us, a God that is infinitely and divinely wise and holy. Right? So from the beginning of time. I don't know if you guys have ever thought about that. I have, and it's one of those things where if you're in the shower and you think too long about it, you're just like, oof. Uh, just, trying to, just trying to reconcile in your mind something that isn't created and stands outside of time. Like God, just in his eternality. He's just always been. There's never been a point where he was created or he came about. He just was always there. Well, and then you add to all of that the verses that we just read, and it's like God is so incomprehensibly sovereign. Yeah, it just it, it, it speaks it from page to page. As we read it, one of those verses, it just screams His immense sovereignty and His divine purpose and plan over everything. Yeah, couple that with what you just said. Yeah, His degree also has a goal, right? There's a goal here, right? Um, as Ephesians, I think it's Ephesians. Yeah. Um, uh, to the praise and glory of his wisdom, power, justice, and mercy. Um, do you have Ephesians 1, verse 11? I have that written down. I didn't write and type it out, though. And in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Yeah. Amen. So there's this eternal plan that he has created to the counsel of his own will. It's being outward over time to the praise and glory of his wisdom, power, justice, and mercy. Which is, like you said, it's very um, incomprehensibly majestic, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, so one thing I'll say real quick. So I've got a lot of other thoughts and notes here. Um, and we'll clarify some of this even more as we move to the other paragraphs. The other paragraphs are a little bit shorter. Um, God's decree... God decreeing things and the way that he operates in that way, having existed outside of time eternally, his decree is strange and foreign to us as creatures because we are not creators in the sense that God is. We are his creatures, creatures, creations. We are limited by space and time, right? So we are limited to the the way that we understand physically space and time. We are bound by those rules, right? God is an eternal, infinite, and independent being of a very simple nature. We, however, as creatures, are temporal, finite, and dependent. And we have complex natures. We could not be further from God in terms of how we are as just beings in general, right? Our dependence on God feels every moment of our existence. That's kind of the one thing I took away from this, is in reading this, reading all the references that were laid out, we are eternally and in totality dependent on God. Acts 17, oh, sorry, just Jeff, say something, sorry. So this this, uh, particular subject about God not being the author of any of the sin nature or any, you know, any of the failure and we're, we're not tempted by him that came up in men's bible study and now it's showing up again in this class i'm thinking am i supposed to ask the question because i'm not <laughs> i'm not really getting why 
Yeah. But, but what my question is, is like, is this another one of those areas where we really don't know too much about it, so we don't have to worry about it? Or is this a very important aspect, like the, the sin? How did it come about? If God is not the author of it, and he's not the one that's tempting us. Where does it come from, or do we not know? <laughs> Bella Elder over here shaking his head. Say that again. I just want to say I'm glad he asked. Yeah. That was in my mind too. Yeah, exactly. So I'll stumble through that, and then Damien can can help me out if needed. Um, I will start by saying that there are men across time who have wrestled with that same thought. There are ten dollar word, ten dollar theological words for different positions. Mm-hmm on whether or not God didn't author sin or did impartial or did totally. Um, so all that to say, there are smarter men than I that have wrestled with this and have come to various conclusions. The way I understand it is that, as we see in here, going back to the idea of we having free agency, second causes, right? God decreed things, which is the first cause of all things, Right? But then we as creatures, the things that happen in our lives, the things we do and say, are second causes. The way that I understand it is that reading the confession, reading the scriptural references, is that obviously in the garden, when God created Adam and Eve, there was no sin, right? Pre-fall, there was no sin, right? But he did create Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve, in their contingency, chose to disobey God. And in disobeying God, brought sin into the world. Obviously, they were banished from the garden. Death and pain were introduced. They realized they were naked. Oh, gosh, I need deer skin, you know, to cover up my shame. I mean, just all these things came about at the fall, right? So sin is a result. Sin exists in our world because of Adam and Eve bringing sin into the world through their disobedience to God in the garden, right? And from there on out, we, so this is another topic we'll, I don't, we've covered at some point. We're not covering it in depth here, but... The idea that Adam is our federal head, right? Adam, Adam was the Adam is Adam. Jesus is the second Adam because he perfects and did what the first Adam couldn't, right? But we have inherited sin from Adam, right? Just through the through the ages, through the, all the genealogies, um, we have inherited sin because Adam sinned, and Adam was our federal head. So when we say that God's not the author of sin, now this is where those that like to think deeply. You know, we'll say, yeah, but God, but God created Adam and Eve. He caused these things. It was probably even a part of his plan to do that. So how can you say that God didn't create sin? It's just one of those things that where I've arrived at, it's one of those beautiful mysteries that in faith I've chosen to accept for myself personally, and you can add to this, please, is that I just don't see it that way. God in his like eternality decreed all these things that happened, the first cause of everything. But God did not author sin. Adam and Eve brought sin into the world when they disobeyed God. And everything after that has come as a result of that. So just one small addition to that. Yeah. So I'm, I was thinking, does it have anything to do with Satan given the fact that he was the one that enticed mm-hmm. or, or seduced her into that? Okay, then the other part would have been, oh, well, you also have the tree of the good and, mm-hmm. good and uh, evil, yeah. right? So is it the knowledge from the tree or is it? That I don't know. I mean, that's a great question, actually. I don't know. I, was it the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Was the fact that they ate the tree 
is what made sin come into the world because then now they're aware of sin? Or is it just God told them not to do that, but they did, and that's disobedience of then sin? I'm a little fuzzy on that. They they sinned sinned before they they actually took a bite. Right, exactly. When they reached their hand out to grab the fruit, whatever fruit that was, it wasn't an apple. Yeah. Um, When they chose to make that bite, that's when they sinned. Right, yeah. Okay. Now, it also wasn't counted to Eve right. as the sinner. It was counted to Adam, and that's what kind of proves the federal headship. Right. He was the one who was accountable as the representative of all of mankind. Mm-hmm. Now, God created Adam and Eve perfect, but changeable. Um, and in their decision to defy God um, by listening to what the serpent said because Eve was deceived Adam chose Um, sin entered into the world that way now why why did sin have to enter into the world well I think Ephesians um, 3 no Ephesians 1 3 through 6 explains it Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Here's the reason. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Mm -hmm. The whole reason for him adopting us, the whole reason for sin to even be in the world, is to the praise of his glorious grace. If no one had ever sinned, then no one would ever need mercy nor would anyone ever need grace. So in order to show one of his major attributes, you can't even say major because he's all of grace, he's all love, he's all, you know, all of his attributes, that's where the simplicity of God comes in. It's that he he cannot be reduced any further. His grace, in order to show his grace, there must be sin in the world. He is not the author of sin, but he did foreordain sin to come to pass so that he could show his love, his mercy, his grace. Yeah. That, that part right there is, to me, evident. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, the one thing I don't understand is, I, I, and I actually believe that really we, we're kind of being tested through that mode, right? I mean, that whole grace. We're, we're being tested by our own, you know, will and uh, the things that we would kind of uh, be attracted to or be. We'll get into that in chapter five. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Jumping ahead, Jeff. No. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 these are great questions. I'm, thank you for stopping me. Like I said, I was just going to keep trucking. Yeah. So for in him we live and move and have our being. Acts talks about this. So do you have more of a question? Sorry. Yeah. Please continue. I just I don't. I'm not saying this is the case. I just don't know, and this is where my mind is going at this moment. If God is not the author of sin, 
doesn't that kind of imply that there's something out there that has the power to create something other than God? I mean, you know, because like, everything yeah. else we believe is nobody can do anything like this except for God. So where does this sin come from if not from God? Yeah. So think about it in positive terms only. Right? God can only do good. Because he's God. Not that anything that he does, he chooses whether it's good or bad. It's because God does it, it is good. Okay? Mm. Anyone who does anything, because we do still have a free agency, our choices really do matter. If we do something that does not align with what God says then we are sinning. Now, I'm taking it all the way back to someone who actually can choose to do good or evil, like Adam did. Right. Right? We, as creatures who are under Adam and not yet in Christ, we don't have the capability of choosing to do the good. What? What about those people who walk little old ladies across the street and help them? Isn't that doing good? According to Isaiah, those are filthy rags. Mm. All of your good works are like filthy rags in my sight. How can that be? Because anything that is not of faith is sin. So if you're doing something that is contrary to the will of God... You're doing something that you know has been told not that you've told been told not to do, like Adam did, then that is doing something that is not of faith. And because it is not of faith, it is sin. So the creation of a, a, a creature, Adam, who had the ability to choose whether to do good or evil, God didn't create sin. He gave the creation the ability to choose. And because they chose sin, that is how sin entered into the world. So would it be right to say that he, he created the potential? Yes. That's, yeah, that's what yes. I was going to say. He, there, he created the world with the potential of sin, but he did not create sin itself. So is he taking away that potential at the end of time when we're all in heaven? There will be no more sin. Mm -hmm. Yes. So he's just taking yeah, that away. It's gone. And why? <clears throat> so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means that those who have believed on Christ, those who have been redeemed by God, who have been brought from death to life, will be the trophies of God's mercy and grace for all of eternity. So that if there's some time in the ages to come, after God has remade this world, and someone says, hey, God, I don't really understand your grace. Can you explain it to me? He can point to those whom he has redeemed. This is what my mercy and grace does. But yes, there will be a time when there is no more possibility of sin. That kind of, you know, answers that question, you know, that you said, you know, when you're in the shower, you know, mm -hmm. 
you kind of think, you know, what is the purpose? What is the point of all of this? Why didn't God just take us, you know, to his kingdom? Mm -hmm. You know, as soon as, you know, Christ was raised, just kind of take us all up. Mm -hmm. And we're here with each, you know, each of these situations to point to God's grace. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so... Yeah, we got a lot to cover. <laughs> if I'll stick around afterwards and talk about this as long as you want. Do you mind if we just keep? Yeah, no, that's like, those are really great questions. Those are things we all have to wrestle with. Um, but just to keep us moving, because we're only in paragraph one, I'm going to just kind of read my thoughts here. Um, and again, it doesn't fully address sort of like, I guess to boil your question down, and forgive me if I'm oversimplifying, it's like, what is the origin of sin, right? Did God create it? Did it always exist? If it always existed, how? Not really going to answer that necessarily, but if we just assume for a moment that sin, regardless of how it originated, entered the world through Adam and Eve's failure, we see a relationship in the created order of cause and effect. Um, and just for sake of time, uh, I won't have you read these, but Proverbs 16, James 4, Matthew 5, these all talk about um, this idea that Scripture instructs us to think of all causes that we witness as not the first cause. Again, so these things that happen in our lives, the things that happen around us, whether good or bad, we should see them as secondary causes because God, in his decree, is the first cause of all things. So this is a concept called concurrence. I think I looked this up, read a bunch of stuff. The one I think that most succinctly summarized it was uh, uh, Mr. Sproul. Um, the actions of two or more parties taking place at the same time. Plain and simple. One is temporal and dependent. The other is eternal and independent. So God in his decree is the first cause of all things that will take place in history. Yet all that happens in history occurs by secondary causes according to their particularly creaturely nature. So again, we still have free agency. We still have contingency. We still have the ability to act freely. But we are acting freely always in accordance with the nature that we were given as creatures, right? So it's important to note then that sin and evil arise from us as creatures and not from God, who scripture says has no fellowship with it, even though God himself does work in and through <clears throat> sin and its existence in the world. So a couple of examples of this. Look at who hurt and mistreated Joseph in the story of Joseph, right? Both willfully and sinfully. A bunch of different parties treating Joseph um, just absolutely terribly. They could have chosen to treat him with love and respect. They could have chosen to do that, and yet they didn't, right? Nobody in that story, least of all his brothers, right? His brothers were particularly cruel and uncaring, threw him in a pit, you know, said, oh, look, look, Dad, the, you know, the animal got him, and then they sold him off to slavery. But then look at Joseph's words to his brothers, right? His brothers, you know, Joseph is now, you know, second in command. His brothers are coming to him. There's famine in the land. Uh, Joseph could have sent them away, right? But Joseph says... But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Mm -hmm. Another example, look at the, all the men who crucified Jesus, right? All the way from Pilate making that conscious decision. I mean, he had more than one opportunity. You guys sure you don't want to let this guy go? Doesn't look like he did anything wrong. Oh, you want Barabbas, the criminal murderer dude? Sure, let's, let's let him go. Like, he had all these opportunities, right? You had all the centurion guards, right, that whipped him with the tail of nine lashes. And is that the right? No, the cat of nine tails. Sorry. Um, words are hard. Uh, you know, pierced his side with the spear. I mean, treated him completely cruelly, right? 
And yet they all did it by their own free agency. They all did it in accordance with their, their nature as creatures. And yet, what happened there? Acts says it happened according to God's plan and purpose. And Romans described it as happening for God's own glory and praise and unto our greatest good. Again, so what God or what man meant for evil, God meant for good. So anyway, all this account's a simple fact. All of history since the fall is a record of human sin and sorrow and suffering, with each actor at every moment doing what he desires, and yet God is also at work in those same events doing good. And oftentimes it even does good to those that produce evil. Right? So even in that, God is doing as he decreed. All right, I'm going to keep moving because we've got about 15 minutes left. So paragraph two, or just a paragraph two, sorry. Although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. So I'm going to break that down in just a second. Can somebody read, uh, actually Jeremy already read Romans 9. Can somebody read Acts 15, verse 18? I can read it. If... So Acts what? 1518. 1518. 1518? Mm-hmm. You, you need to read um, part of 17 as well. Yes, part of, please start at 17 too. Acts 15, 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Right. So many have tried, this is just to break this down, so what this passage, excuse me, paragraph is sort of referring to. Many have tried to divorce the creature from God and the first, God being the first cause of these things, right? They've tried to explain that away, sort of separate them, right? God certainly knows all possibilities in all possible worlds with all the contingencies and conditions on which some of those things could happen, Right. However, he did not decree anything because of that knowledge. Right. Right? So he knows all possibilities in all possible worlds and all such contingencies and conditions. But he didn't decree anything because he knew all that already. And that's important. It is important. It's very important because if he decreed something based upon what he saw as future, then that means he is not truly in control of that future. Correct. He is then dependent upon something outside of himself. Right. Which he is not. Which he is not. Right. Rather, his knowledge of the future is due to his decree of the future. So he decreed it, and he knows it because he decreed it. Right? He didn't decree it because he knew it. All right. We're going to keep moving. Uh, Paragraph three. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory... Some men and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace. Others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. And I'm actually going to keep going here because four, paragraph four is kind of connected. And my thoughts were 
kind of combining them. These angels and men, thus predestined and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, God's eternal purposes are centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. God will be praised because of his glory known in either grace through Jesus Christ or experienced in his justice, right? So some men have been pre men and angels have been predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, and others have not. God is righteous, the others have sin. For whatever reason, God chose to choose some, but did not choose others. So God's eternal plan is centered on his purposes are centered in Christ. And his glory will be known either through the redemption of that man, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, or experienced in the justice of sinners being punished. So though God God decrees both predestination to life and being left to act in their own sin, they differ at a fundamental level. And actually, because this is a sort of tricky thing, I wanted to read kind of what Mr. Ventura wrote here, because I thought it was really helpful. Uh, there we go. Second, there is a difference between predestin- predestination to life and being left to act in their sin. Mm. Though God's decree determines the one as well as the other, they differ at a fundamental level. Robert Lethem's comments on the Westminster <coughs> Confession are deeply insightful. We should note the disparity between election and reprobation. Election is by grace and is rooted in Christ. Reprobation or preterition, the passing by, is in connection with sin and God's justice. There is asymmetry, but is not a parallel. Ultimately, both depend on the unchangeable, wise, holy, and eternal will of God, but in themselves they differ considerably. God's active grace in Jesus Christ under redemption is not the same as his passing by those who were left in their sin and rebellion. And if you notice, it says that that they were predestined and foreordained to eternal life, yeah. but it doesn't say predestined and foreordained to condemnation, mm-hmm. because it's not a double predestination. All of the world deserves hell. Mm-hmm. He has predestined that out of the world some would be redeemed, yeah. and the rest would experience his justice and wrath. Just a quick question. Yeah, I would say. No. <laughs> Just it sounds like a a, a probability equation. <laughs> Honestly, to me, it's like some guys are the things that they're going to go through in their life. They're going to end up being in the chosen group, and then these other people are left to just chance whether or not they're going to get in. You know, and I'm going. I don't know that. Go ahead, say it. Yeah, there's no there's no chance involved here. There's no chance involved here because then the number of those who were predestined to eternal life could change. There is no chance involved here. It is all the determined will of God that those who will be saved were elect from before the foundation of the world, before anyone had done anything good or evil. God has chosen. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's why that language is there, to Damien's point. That's yeah. why that language is there, because it's a fair question, right? It's a fair question to look at this, to look at something that an infinite being in mind has decreed and try to look through it through our finite lens and try to make sense of it that way, saying that there's, it seems like there's some really unfair probability here 
is a completely normal human thing to think and to question. It's why the authors of this document were so particular about using that language of they are uh, particularly and unchangeably designed and their numbers so certain and definite, right? Mm -hmm. Is to go back to whether you agree with it or not or like it or not, their interpretation of what we find in scripture is that before the beginning of time, God decreed in his eternality, those he would choose to save and he would pass by others. And it's for his glory and for his um, praise. <laughs> so again, those things are different as, as uh, Damien described, which thank you, is there's no what we call double predestination. Right. It's not that he chose some to eternal life and then chose others to not have eternal life. He chose some to eternal life and passed by others, mm -hmm. right? And again, that's diff. That's it's just a distinction, right? Mm -hmm. That needs to be made. Um, and again, to remind you, this is what our church holds to. This is what this confession holds to. There are other thoughts on these matters, obviously. But what we're describing to you is what this, the authors of this confession, how they look at scripture, how they've interpreted these things, and we're saying that we, as a church, broadly as a church, hold to them. It's also not to say that you have to agree 100% with every single theological point ever to be a member here, to serve here, whatever. But just that, to be clear, this is the confession we hold to. This is what the confession says. And here's why we agree with it. So it's all to the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians 1.6. I'm going to keep moving. Sorry, I know I'm blazing. We've got seven minutes. Um, paragraph five. Those of mankind that are predestined to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and mutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto. So, it's all of Christ. All of Christ. So this is what, to put in a, in a hopefully a simpler concept, you may or may not be familiar with it, but just unconditional election, yeah. right? It's a point, it's a, one of the five points of Calvinism right? Unconditional election. It is all 100% and completely of Christ, right? He hath, uh, through the secret counsel and good pleasure of his own will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto. So there is nothing in and of ourselves, right, that adds to or is a condition of or gives us salvation, redemption, right? It is all of Christ. So paragraph five is just sort of a fancy old school, like thinker way of basically saying unconditional election. It also, just to be clear, uh, this particular confession, if you guys remember from the intro class, this is a slight um, tweak of an earlier confession called the Savoy Declaration which was a sort of a tweak of the Westminster. All that to say, this is not unique to this confession, right? This and other reformed confessions tenaciously maintain that God's election is entirely of his own sovereign choice, right? Um, and it's independent of any foreseen behavior. Again, going back to his decree, right? Is independent of anything he saw in future, right? Uh, so there's no behavior in the elect, there's no good works or faith that God saw at some point in history and time and then used that to make a decision to save, right? Mm -hmm. Completely independent of that. Um, 
God saves sinners. Salvation, it was decreed in eternity by God, and it's accomplished and experienced through time. Um, there's a bunch of references here. If you'd like them, I can send them to you later, but we're going to... Did you have a... No, okay, keep going. Cool. <clears throat> Paragraph six. Almost there. There's seven. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed in Christ, are effectually called to faith in Christ, by his spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. So, some points from this. Election, the idea of election, God electing, right? Appointing, uh, predestining. It doesn't save. Election itself doesn't save. It just simply determines those who will God save, who God will save, sorry. This paragraph is then describing the necessary means by which those are saved, right? So election is the idea that God has preordained, foreordained, appointed, elected. But this describes the necessary means, right? So the justification, the adoption, the sanctification, we are all kept, right, in, uh, by his power uh, through faith unto salvation. So, and again, it sort of doubles down at the end, right? Nor any other redeemed by Christ, but the elect only. So that's what we're saying here is that this accomplished work, right, is not for everyone. That would be, there would be universalism, right? Uh, this is also probably sneaks into limited atonement territory, right? So mm-hmm. the election of people is like the other paragraph said, finite, right? Um, this paragraph describes the means by which those are saved. Um, I'm going to read again uh, some of what Mr. Ventura said. Okay. All right, God saves sinners. This statement is simple enough for a young child to understand and is deep enough to astonish and occupy great theological minds for a lifetime. Salvation that was decreed in eternity by God is accomplished and experienced in time. Election is the most marvelous truth revealed in religion, yet it is not election that saves sinners. Rather, election only determines the sinners that God will save. Restoring man who has fallen in Adam to one of happy sonship with God as Father involves some necessary means. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. These are the means of Christ's redemption, effectual calling, where the sinner is regenerated and enabled to respond with faith. Justification, where the sinner is declared righteous by faith. Adoption, where the sinner is brought into the family of God. Sanctification, that separates the sinner from the power of sin and then being preserved or kept by God for salvation. Like beautiful facets of a diamond, these are all the work of God who alone saves his elect people from their sins. So this again, this paragraph is talking about how um, those that are elected, and only those who are elected, are redeemed by these necessary means prescribed in this paragraph. 
Um, you could also call this the order of salutis or the order, order of salvation. So all these things, this is the order in which these things happen, by, by which man is uh, redeemed. Um, and all of these means, right, sanctification, justification, adoption, perseverance, they're all found, they all find their origin in God's eternal degree. This is all a part of what God has decreed from the beginning of time. Lastly, we're almost there. The doc, excuse me, paragraph seven. The doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. That men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of the, their eternal election. So shall the doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So, when we talk about election, predestination, especially if you're hearing it for the first time, it's a very, it's complicated, and honestly, it's very, it's, it can be offensive, mm-hmm. right? It's offensive to just, mm-hmm. as humans, right, we just sort of have this, we have this autonomy that we're used to, right? We're used to being in control of things because we do have free agency, of course. Um, and so it's not, it's probably not unsurprising that not everybody holds to that view, that there's some disagreement within the global church about this issue. One of the, one of the things that I will say, though, that is the most comforting about this topic is that, or this theological point, is that with election and predestination, it ensures your perseverance. Mm-hmm. Okay? Say that again. It ensures your perseverance. Mm-hmm. In that God will keep you. Mm-hmm. If it were by your own free will to choose God, or if it were in some way up to some conditional thing, right? How I act, how I behave, what I do, what I don't do. Logically... <laughs> If it's up to you to make that decision or to do that thing, it's then up to you and, and could be on you to lose it, right? So there is a, just by the nature of that, the idea that God elects, that God has chosen who he will save, and that it's completely of Christ, and that it's by these necessary means that only he can supply, ensures our perseverance, right? We cannot lose our salvation. We cannot be taken from God. God's love cannot be removed from us. Election assures that because it was all of God from the beginning. So I would say for those of you that may be unfamiliar with this topic or struggle with it, even honestly at times, I still do, right? It's still, there's still just moments where you're like, man, this seems really unfair. I go back to, but for those of us that have it, for those of us that God has elected, for those of us that know Christ, it is so comforting because it is the assurance of our salvation. We have that and nothing can remove us from that. Um, so there is a comfort there. Um, again, not to say, I don't want to remove any sort of, you know, it is, it's complicated. It's, it can be offensive to our, <laughs> to our own consciousness sometimes. But it is, it is comforting because, again, it assures us. There's nothing that we can do to remove ourselves from God's love or the salvation that has been granted to us. Um, and lastly, I just wanted to read one more, one more section. Um, yes, because I think this is important. Um, essentially, obviously there's some questions that kind of flow out of that then. One of the 
one of the common concerns or pitfalls or um, ditches on the side of the road um, when it comes to election is sort of moving into um, antinomianism, which is anti-law. I mean, we don't have to keep the law. We don't have to do anything. There's no whatever. Um, it's all good, man. Let go and let God. You know, just this whole like loosey-goosey, like everything's taken care of. God did his part. Thank you for that, God. Now, however I live, whatever I do, following this doesn't matter. And that couldn't be further from the truth. So I kind of talk about this here a little bit. So it says, understanding that God works alone in salvation is not an invitation to indifference or passivity or a sloth, let go, and let God attitude. The confession instructs readers that the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care, that men attending the free will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto. Now you have to remember, because then when you get into camps where you're like combating theological issues, it's very easy to then like pendulum swing into some other error, right? If we truly are regenerate, if we love Christ and we are elected, we will obey his word. But God, through his Holy Spirit, is what enables us to obey. It is not self-generated in and of us. It is the Holy Spirit that helps us obey. And our obedience and our good works is a result of our salvation. It is not a condition by which we are saved or continue to be saved. I want to make that distinction. We don't want to fall from antinomianism into legalism, right? Our works, the good things we do, when we serve others, when we read our Bibles, spend time in the Word, spend time in prayer, uh, fellowship in the church, um, all the good things, helping little ladies across the street. Those are all good things, good and faithful things. Um, but if, for those of us that are in Christ that believe the gospel, there will be some measure of obedience in our lives, and we are called to obey the Word. Again, we do it by the power of the Spirit, and it doesn't save, but it is a necessary outworking and a necessary result of salvation. So, we're going to leave that. First John says, I write these things, little children, so that you will not sin, but for any who do Dude. sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Mm. Amen. Love it. All right. Um, you're done, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the, um, no, I was just thinking how this applies to uh, talk about how that, um, we're grafted into the vine, mm -hmm. and you know that literally, if we if we stay connected to Jesus through the vine, then literally we sh will will thrive and mm -hmm. will do God's will, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah. Now, my understanding is there's a part of that where God, the Father, can actually come and prune the, the vine. Is that true? The, any any <laughs> unnatural grafting in, yeah. because we are we are from a wild vine rather than from the vine, the 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 true vine. That is contrary to nature. But any who have been grafted in will never be completely cut off. Now, the pruning is not a cutting completely off, but rather trimming around the rough edges. Okay. Okay? That's, yes. that's what I want to clear up. 
Yeah, as far as technology, I, I that's actually really helpful. Get, I, I, I kind of thought, it goes no, back you, can, to, you can be drafted into divine and then be cut off. No, because no, not, not no, no. That, would, that would imply that you're cut off from God, cut right. off from the family of God, cut off from the covenant. That, that doesn't happen. That's the perseverance, right? That's the perseverance after that. Yeah. Um, but it's not to say, so another question that comes up, Jeff, is like, we talked about this in the sanctification class, right? Well, I know I'm a part of the vine, but what if I'm not producing fruit? Right? There's that question. And that's a matter of sanctification. That's what we talked about. Sanctification is not this. Mm-hmm. It's not even this. Right. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it looks like a heart monitor. There are seasons <laughs> in which... Where you um, go negative. You go negative or whatever, you know. Um, but those that are truly in Christ... And we talked about that too, right? What if you're in the valley, right? And you're looking at this going, I'm not producing any fruit. I'm not doing anything. I'm just really just a bump on a log. But, I, you know, it's like, what does that mean? Um, yes. We can be assured, right? The fact that you would even worry about that is is kind of a sign, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody who's not regenerate wouldn't care at all, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But if you're sort of in that valley, there's no fruit, there's no whatever, there's no joy, whatever. It's like the fact that you're concerned about it at all is a good sign that you're regenerate. Again, it goes back to Christ. It's all of Christ. That's why it's so important. The gospel is so important. It's why our church harps on it so much. It's why our church likes to revisit it often and make sure that that is just the foundation of everything, right? We are secure in Christ. What we have is because of Christ. It's maintained by Christ. Um, and so we can't lose it. Um, and it's helpful to remember that because there are going to be seasons, particularly in sanctification, where we're just kind of all over the map, right? Um, so anyway, um, we need to wrap up. I'm 10 minutes over. Sorry. Uh, I'm going to pray real quick, and then if anybody has any other questions, you can stick around. So. Uh, God, thank you so much again for who you are. We thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you that um, for the purposes and plans of uh, your praise and glory and for our good, God, that you have chosen us, God, that we have communion with you uh, through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for um, just the sacraments, the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for all the good things uh, that get, we get to partake in because of Christ and because of you. Um, again, God, uh, may we honor you through our words and through our actions. Um, help us to um, enter into the sanctuary morning with hearts that are undistracted. Uh, help us to, to the best of our abilities, focus on you, worshiping you, giving you due praise and glory for who you are. We just thank you again for your love for us. Um, just thank you again for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.